Spirit is saying, we pray that you are glorified in every song that is sung, in every conversation that's happened, in every verse, Lord, that is going to be read. We pray the saints that are here are equipped to go deeper in you. And for those that are here, we pray salvation is presented, that we may truly understand the power of your resurrection and always in all things in your name. Amen. We're actually going to pick up where we kind of left off a little bit on Wednesday night. If you weren't with us Wednesday, we stopped our study in the book of Mark, and we did a study on the actual death of Christ. What does that mean? Kind of the key verse there comes out of Philippians 10 through 11, where it talks about knowing the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. So often we just want to know about the power of his resurrection. We just want all the joy, all the fun to sing up from the grave here rose and have a donut on a Sunday morning there after sunrise. That's what we want. But to get to that point of the resurrection, you need to also have and understand his sufferings that happened. And that's what we talked about on Wednesday. So with that being said, the last verse that we spoke about on Wednesday was talking about the vision that Christ had. He had set his mind, he had set his eyes on this idea of the cross. And that's where I want to start here this morning with. Would you go with me to Matthew 16, please? Matthew 16. You see this from Jesus' perspective. He had this purpose. He had the vision to come and to die. You know, a lot of times when we talk about Christmas, we want to focus on the baby in the manger. We really need to realize that Christmas is the first day of a 33-year-long process of death. Jesus was born to die. And you see this here in Matthew 16, start in verse 21 with me. From that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. He must do this. Must. This this is, once again, his calling, his vision, his purpose. And Jesus had this focused mentality to do it and had joy while doing it. Hebrews 12 tells us that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. He had joy in this idea of going and dying. Isaiah 53 tells us that it pleased God to bruise him. That there was a joy that came out of this because sins could be dealt with and taken care of. And we talked about how we need that same purpose in life. If you weren't with us at the sunrise service this morning, at the sunrise service we were in Matthew 28 talking about the story of sunrise there and them going to the tomb. And Jesus kept repeating this idea of go and tell people. Tell. We have learned this. We have heard about this. So now our job is to go tell them. And one of the points that we made was this. Maybe we don't find the joy. Maybe we don't find the excitement of Resurrection Sunday. Maybe we don't find the joy and excitement of life and in Jesus because we're not doing what he said to do, to go tell people. And maybe when we tell people, that's where that joy and excitement comes because we get a chance to impact eternity. I want to take those points and kind of combine them together here now on Resurrection Sunday. You see Jesus' purpose, that he must go and be killed and raised the third day. But here's the deal. He has this straightforward vision of this, but look what happens in 22. Then Peter took him aside, began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this should not happen to you. Boy, any time you want to grow or go deeper in the Lord, there's going to be a rebuke from somebody. There's going to be pushback any time we want more of Jesus Christ. Sometimes the pushback is from outside sources. Sometimes the pushback is from your own flesh itself. But there's always going to be pushback. And look what Jesus did here in 23. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Jesus saw this, this idea of being rebuked by Peter as being almost demonically, satanically inspired. 
that my goal, my purpose is the cross where sins will be taken care of, where death will be defeated, and where we will have joy and purpose, and anything that keeps me from that is of the enemy. That is a deep purpose in life. Can you imagine having that type of vision and focus on something? Where you said, this is what God has called me to do. And anything that gets in the way of this, I'm going to look at as from the enemy. That's how steadfastly Jesus was focused on this. In fact, that's the word used in Luke 9, 51. You don't need to turn there. It said that he steadfastly set his face towards Jerusalem. He resolutely, he said, this is what it is. My vision, my purpose is this. Go with me now, please, to John chapter 12. Jesus knew what he was getting into on the cross. He knew the death. He knew what it would mean. He knew what it would represent. And it was troubling to him. We see that in John chapter 12. John chapter 12, take a look at verse 27 with me. Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. It troubled him knowing what was coming. As we mentioned Wednesday night when Jesus cried out from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He didn't say that during the beating. He didn't say that while his back was being laid open. He didn't say that while his beard was being pulled out or while the crown of thorns was on his head. He didn't say that while being spit upon. He said that while hanging on the cross and the darkness came over and the sins of the world were on his shoulders. It wasn't the physical pain that made him say, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was sin. But that's why he came. He knew that. And he was set, determined, resolutely, steadfastly, was going to do it. See, here's the deal. We, we desire this in life. We desire to have that same type of mindset to accomplish something, to accomplish a task. And what happens is, unless you realize that it's only going to come from Jesus Christ, you're going to always try to fill that excitement, to fill that sense of accomplishment with something else. You'll go out and you'll buy more toys. You'll get with more women. You'll have more drink. You'll watch more TV. You'll fill it with something. And it'll always leave you wanting more. That's why Ecclesiastes says that God has put into us eternity. We desire something deeper than this. And if you don't believe me, go read the book of Ecclesiastes, and you will see it's man's pursuit to fill himself with everything and still walk away empty at the end. We desire more. We want to accomplish something. We want that feeling of finishing a task, that feeling of a fulfillment. And we see that in Jesus. And I want to take that and apply that to us here today. Because all of us are searching for that feeling. We are. I mean, we fill it with little things, as I mentioned earlier. Toys, women, drink, TV. But it's sometimes even stuff that we consider good. We're getting ready to start mowing yards here soon, right? A lot of you men are going to get done mowing your yard. And you're going to sit for about 30 seconds when you get done and look at your yard and say, that looks good. That sense of fulfilling a task. Guess what you're going to do the next week? You're going to go mow it again. We like that idea of a task being complete. We like the idea of the meal being prepared and sitting down and looking at it before we eat. And that feeling of, oh, that's that's right there. One of the things that Dawn says at home all the time, you know what a good day is in the urban house? When there's no laundry left to do. That feeling of the task being completed. You like the idea of a good day at work. You've done your day. You've completed your work. You can go home and rest. This is even from an early age. My boys, when they were younger, they would build something out of blocks, build something out of Legos, and just be so proud of it. And say, Dad, can you take a picture of it? That sense of accomplishment. I fulfilled the task. Here's the deal. Guess what? The yard's going to have to be mowed every week. And even if you got all the laundry caught up, you're still wearing clothes that you're making dirty. 
You're going to have to prepare a few meals a day, and the Legos will fall over, and you're going to have days that are good, and you're going to have days that are bad. You're looking for something deeper. You're looking for something more where you can stop and say, I found fulfillment. Now, here's the catch. Some of you are finding fulfillment in many different things. Some of it is not biblical in any way whatsoever. Inappropriate relationships, pride, money, whatever. Some of you are finding fulfillment in stuff that's not necessarily bad. Your fulfillment is in work. Your fulfillment is in family. Your fulfillment is in your wife and your kids. Those things aren't necessarily bad, but your fulfillment is supposed to be in Jesus Christ and Christ alone. That's what we're trying to realize here, and that's what we're trying to understand. It is going to be in Christ and Christ alone. Listen, I love my wife, but my wife did not die on the cross for my sins. I love my boys, but my boys can't open the door to heaven to me. And I love this place, and I love this church, but here's the reality. Harvest Fellowship as a church is not going to go into eternity, because in eternity it's all about Christ. I have to make my joy, my purpose, my fulfillment in life in Christ and Christ alone. There are moments of success and moments of failure. I'm a big fan of Oswald Chambers. And Oswald Chambers talks about in a lot of his devotions this idea of middle-of-the-road days. It is easy to be excited about the Lord when there's this fantastic day of just ministry. I, I was so excited about today, it was hard to sleep. I was just excited. Get to teach three times. Everybody's going to show up. People are going to try to dress up even nicer. People are going to come. Everybody's going to be happy. You get donuts. Everybody's just happy. This, this is just a great day. Guess what happens next Sunday? How boring. We're back to Proverbs 20. There's no donuts. People aren't going to dress up. I mean, the Holy Spirit probably won't even move next Sunday. I mean, why would God even show up? It's not Resurrection Sunday, right? But here's the deal that Oswald Chambers tries to say is this. He says, most of your life is not in the highs, and most of your life is not in the lows. Most of your lives are in just normal, and he uses the word mundane things. He goes, and it's those normal mundane things that you see and understand who Jesus Christ is, and that's what takes you deeper in the Lord. As you look for Christ in everything. We have this little saying that we do at our house. That when we go to grab milk from Walmart, it's not getting milk from Walmart. You're on a mini missions trip. Get out there and represent Jesus Christ to everybody you have. There is nothing that is not eternal when you stop and you look at it from that perspective. And Jesus is trying to set the example here with his death and his resurrection. He says, this is the most important thing and this is what all that matters. And I want us to get that today. And let's build on this now. Can you go with me to 1 Corinthians 15? Please keep your hand here in John 12 because we're coming back to it. 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us about the importance of this idea of the resurrection and why this is so important. The resurrection of Christ gives us purpose. Death has been defeated, the grave is empty, there is victory in Jesus. This gives us the purpose of why we do what we do. Take a look at 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12. Now, if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there's no resurrection of the dead? See, some people want to say there's no resurrection of the dead. There's no afterlife. This is all we got. 13. But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. So if Christ hasn't risen from the dead, everything we do is vain, worthless, useless, hollow. Why are we here? If Christ is not risen from the dead, what an empty day. What a hollow day. Our faith is also useless and empty. 
Yes, and we are also found, 15, false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that He raised up Christ, whom He did not raise up if in fact the dead did not raise. So even though now my life is useless, empty, and void because Christ really didn't rise from the dead, I'm also now a liar, verse 15. Verse 16, for if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. See, now this is where it gets serious. If Christ has not risen from the dead, who's taking care of my sin problem? See, I, I can get on the cross and say I'm dying for my sins. I can say I'm dying for your sins. And I could go through everything Jesus Christ went through, and you could throw me in a tomb, and guess what? Three days later, I'm still in that tomb. I could have the heart, the desire, and the passion to take care of my sins, but I can't take care of my sins. Christ has to. Because I am a sinful person, and a sinful person, I can't pay the debt of sin that I already owe myself. I need a sinless person to pay for my sinful debt. And that's where Christ comes. The Bible says that He paid a ransom for me. He bought me by His blood. And if I choose to deny this resurrection, verse 17, if Christ has not risen, your faith is futile. It is empty, useless, void. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. There is no hope for any of us. And 19, and if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are all the most men pitiable. If we don't have Christ, what is the vision and purpose of your life? Do you really, do you really want your life to be just get up, go to work, come home and do the same thing again tomorrow? Do you really want the purpose of your life to be go out and make money to pay bills? Is that really what you want to be? And watch yourself slowly, steadily lose health and fall apart physically? That's what you want? And as your body starts to fall apart and you get towards the end, you want to just rejoice in what? That you're dying? That's what happens when we don't understand this. This is why Christ has to be everything. See, here's the problem. Either Jesus is everything or is nothing. There's no in between. We have watered down Christianity to we say things like this. Just make Jesus number one. Jesus doesn't want to be number one. He wants to be absolutely everything. See, the problem is when you make Jesus number one, it just sounds like you're giving him most everything. I'm going to really make Christ really important in my life. He gets most of my attention. He's number one. Here's the deal, though. Things change in life. Soon, number two can overtake number one. Pretty soon, number three is more important. And what happens is you say, Jesus is really important unless other things are going on. But I really do love Jesus. Christ never asked to be number one. He asked for absolutely everything. And he makes it clear here in 1 Corinthians 15. If we don't get this and understand the resurrection and his death, then everything we do is futile, empty, hollow, useless, and void. And before you think I'm pushing this too far, jump back now to John chapter 12, please. We read John 12, 27, but now let's back up and see what he said before it. Take a look at 23. The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. John 12, 24 now. Most assuredly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am there, my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my Father will honor. Did you catch how big he's saying in 25? If you love your life, you need to lose it. And if you hate your life, you can get eternal life. And if you really want to serve Him, you've got to follow Him. 
See, Jesus is not asking you to be number one. He's asking for absolutely everything. He's asking you to learn to hate your life and lose it. And once again, before you think we're taking this too far, keep your hand here in John 12. Go with me now to Luke chapter 9. Luke 9. Luke 9 ties this in now to the vision of his death and then also saying this is so important to us. This is how we live. Look at Luke 9, starting 22. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised the third day. There we go. There's our focus in again. The vision. Jesus says, I must do this. This, this is all that matters. 23. Then he said to them all, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Whoever desires to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is he himself destroyed or lost? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and his fathers and of the holy angels. Do you see the intensity of this? 23 and 24. Take up the cross daily, follow me. Whoever desires to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life, for my sake, will save it. He's not asking you to put him number one. He's saying, I want everything, folks. And I just wonder this. If you're the depressed, miserable Christian out there, maybe part of the problem is you're trying to love your life instead of loving Jesus. Maybe part of the problem is you're putting so much effort into trying to save something that God says you're supposed to lose. See, we put so much time and energy into our lives to make it what we want it to be that maybe God says the best thing you could do is lose your life and then actually have joy, peace, excitement of what God has called you to. I will go back to the analogy that I said earlier of the three things that are most important in my life next to Christ. My wife. I could spend all my time and energy trying to be the best husband I could be, to have the best marriage I could be. I could focus on my wife and try to make her happy, but I've realized this. The more I deeply and passionately love Jesus, the better my marriage goes. I could focus on the family. I could make sure I'm there at every event. I could fill my calendar with anything possible that is family-oriented for my kids. And my whole life could be going from event to event to event and making sure my kids know dad is there, dad cares, dad this, dad that. Or I could just passionately love Jesus and see my family grow deeper in Christ. I could make my emphasis this church because I love this place. And I could make sure that everybody here knows how much they are loved and cared for. And this is the ministry and this and that. But the problem is then I will probably love this place more than I love Christ. I have noticed this. I have come to this conclusion. For me to be the best father I can be, to be the best husband I can be, and the best pastor I can be, I need to lose my life and just focus on Christ. And when I learn to lose it, I gain it. And I just ask again... Maybe the depressed, miserable Christian out there, maybe they're trying to love their life more than they love Jesus. And maybe in the effort to try to save their life, they're actually supposed to be putting effort into losing their life and realizing it's all for Him. Practical examples of this, same chapter, Luke 9, look at verse 57. Now it happened as they journeyed on the road that someone said to Him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. Who wouldn't want that? That'd be great to end the service today with everybody standing up and saying, I will follow you wherever you go. We're all going to go into the ministry. Charles Spurgeon used to say this. He used to say if somebody came into his office wanting to go to the ministry, he would do absolutely everything he can to deter them 
from becoming a pastor and going to the ministry. And his logic was very simple. He said this, if I can deter you from going into the ministry, that means you weren't called. Because if you're willing to listen to a man rather than God, then you weren't called. But if after deterring you and doing everything I can to keep you in the ministry, you still sit there and say, Pastor Spurgeon, I hear everything you're saying, but I really want to follow Christ in the ministry. He goes, I know you're called. I will follow you wherever you go. Who wouldn't want to follow Jesus? Every day there's something new. Maybe today he'll feed the 5,000 again. 4,000. Maybe today he'll walk on water. Wouldn't it be cool to see a demon cast out again? I'd like to see our dead raised again. Oh, that person's been healed. Who wouldn't love to follow this? The excitement of it. But then he says this in 58. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. What's he deterring? He's deterring them off the excitement and saying, do you realize the reality of what it means to follow me? I go back to what I said at the beginning part of the message of the Oswald Chambers. There's a lot of highs in ministry. There's a lot of lows. But there's a lot of just going out and living the life daily. Same thing with your lives today. There's just a lot of just middle of the road. If you're chasing excitement, you're not chasing Jesus. You need to chase Jesus. And what he says here is, listen, you have to understand in 58, the reality of the Christian life is sometimes it just doesn't work out the way we think it should. Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man is nowhere to lay his head. Are you really willing to follow me even when it isn't exciting, when it isn't passionate, when it isn't fun, when it doesn't work out? Because I am everything, not your number one. I am everything. Because if I'm number one and it's not really exciting, then you're just going to bump up number two or number three. No, if I am absolutely everything, then it doesn't matter and you'll put me first. What about the next one, 59? Then he said to another, follow me. He said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Please note this one now. 57 was the guy that said, I want to follow you. 59 is now Jesus calling somebody out. Maybe Jesus is calling you out saying something deeper now. I want more of you. And your response is, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus, I'd love to follow you, but first, let me do this. Do you realize how many but firsts there are going to be in life? I really want to go deeper in Jesus, but first, this is a really busy season at work right now. Let me just get through this season and whatever we can do. First, let me finish this project I'm doing at home. It's really been taking a long time. You know what? This is a really busy season with the kids and sports, so let me first get this done. And then I am all yours, Jesus. You realize there's always going to be one more but first? There always will be. And before you look at his response in 60, please understand in 59, the Jewish perspective, let me first go and bury my father. The Jews buried their dead the same day they died. I doubt this man is literally saying, look, here's the body of dad. No, what he's saying is, I have these previous commitments that once I'm done with them, I'd really like to follow you, Jesus. Look at his response in 60. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. Jesus takes them off the here and now and says, nope, it's all about eternity. See, when I lose my life... For Jesus, all of a sudden I get an eternal perspective and everything goes through the lens of eternity. As I mentioned earlier, I'm never getting milk at Walmart. It's a mini missions trip. Nothing is ever just something. Lord, how can this be for you? How can it be for your glory? And I need to realize, Lord, 
sometimes I got to let the dead bury their own dead. I got to let that relationship go. I got to let go of it. And this is something that is taught throughout the Bible, old and new. Remember when Jesus called the disciples, they said they left their nets and followed them. They said they left their father and followed them. If you remember correctly, when Elisha was called in the Old Testament by Elijah, Elisha was out with his oxen and he was plowing the field and Elijah said, follow me. Elisha so followed him, killed the oxen, fed the oxen to other people, destroyed his equipment. That's commitment, folks. That's Elisha saying, I am leaving behind my old life and so completely, utterly following Christ that I'm leaving the nets, the relationships there. How many of us say in 59, though, love you, Jesus, and I'm going to follow you. I'm going to, but just let me do this first. No, he wants everything, folks. Last one, 61, and another also said, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first go and bid them farewell or at my house. Jesus said to him, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. See, this one in 61 is, I, let, let me just, just do this quickly, say my quick goodbye. And, and you just see this person kind of, Lord, I'm going to follow you. Just hold on a second. Hold on a second. This is the person I see that, you know, one day they come up and say, you know what? I, oh, man, I'm called. I'm going to Africa. Next day, I'm going to the bar. Next day, you know what? Back to Africa. God's called me to Africa. The next day, I wonder what inappropriate images I can look at online. Bouncing back and forth, back and forth. 62, they put their hand to the plow and they look back. I've used this analogy many times growing up as a kid, going out there doing wheat stubble or working ground. Dad would tell me, pick a tree, pick a telephone pole in the distance. Keep your eyes on that. Don't keep looking behind. Because if you keep looking behind, you're going to get crooked. Keep your focus on something in the distance that gives you the drive, the determination, and you'll keep the road straight. How many of us in 61, ah, Jesus, I love you, and the next day we don't even think about him. Ah, Jesus, I love you, and the next day we don't think about him. I'm not teaching a legalism. Don't take it that way. What I'm asking is I'm really just asking you, has he really everything? For many of you here, he's number one in your life. There's no doubt about that. You're here. You came on a Sunday. You gave up morning. There's something in you that is desiring more. For many of you, he probably is number one. He's not asking to be number one. He wants everything. He says, lose the life for my sake and you'll find it. And guess what? You'll be blessed. But we live in this state of 61 and 62, this hesitation of, but let me first go do this and, and I'll say goodbye, but then I'll come back. And we go back and forth. Have you ever been caught in that moment of hesitation where you just don't know what to do? I, I was saying at the 830 service, I had something happen to me in the last couple of weeks. And, and bear with me here. I was driving home. From church, and uh, I just crossed the tracks on Hammondsburg. I was just a couple miles from, from home, and I saw this bottle out in the field that just looked really, really cool. It's a really cool looking bottle, and it had it was very big and had a really neat base and a really neat top. Trust me, there's a point to this. And so I saw this, and I saw this bottle, and I thought, I think that'd be a cool bottle to go pick up and collect. We could put money in it. The boys would like to see this. It's a fun-looking bottle. We'll fill it with money. And then maybe when it gets filled up, we'll, we'll send it to the missions or something like that. And I thought, this is really cool. So I just quickly pulled over, actually backed up a little bit because I saw then pulled over, just to even put my four ways on, jumped out of the car real quick, door open, went and grabbed the bottle and picked it up. It's a really cool bottle. It's still there, actually. So really cool bottle. Picked it up. And as I picked it up, I looked at it, and it's the world's biggest bottle of vodka I've ever seen. <laughs> Huge bottle of vodka. 
And you know me, I've seen lots of bottles of vodka in my life. This is the biggest bottle of vodka, which now thinking out loud, it's really about a quarter mile from Bill and Shirley Jones's house. Not, I'm not saying anything. But if you're heading towards Bill and Shirley Jones's house, it's really, really close to their house on Hammondsburg. And to prove that the bottle's still there, I taught this at the 8.30. Rachel Winsinger went home and she just texted me before church the picture of the bottle still there. So just if you're keeping track at home, Rachel Winsinger, who I think is what, 21 or 22, is now texting me bottles of vodka pictures. So don't take that the wrong way. So I'm holding this bottle of vodka. It's empty, but I'm holding this thing. And this is a really cool bottle, but I can't do anything with this. It's a bottle of vodka. So I'm sitting here saying, what do I do? I mean, I I can't put it back down on the ground because now technically it's kind of like littering. I can't put it in my car and take it home to recycle it because now I'm driving with the empty bottle of vodka. And then when we go recycle it, now what am I doing? And I can't take it home and use it. And I'm sitting here trying to figure this out. What do I do with this? And at this point, guess what? A car goes by. (laughs) And as the car is going by, I'm like, do I wave with my bottle of vodka? I mean, how does that look? Hey, you know? Or do I drop the bottle of vodka with my car half the road off, with my door open, looking like I stumbled out, and there is no answer. So to answer the question, the bottle of vodka is still there on Hammersburg Road, right across the tracks, very near Bill and Shirley Jones' house. And I have a picture of it that Rachel Winsinger has sent me. The point is this. It's that indecision, hesitation. What do I do? I... You know what Jesus says to get past that point of indecision? He says, die. Just don't even live anymore. Live for me. And when you live for me, every decision goes through the lens of, does this bring God glory? Does this further the kingdom? Is this for, for you, Lord? Rather than thinking about it from my perspective, Lord, you know, would this be fun? Would I enjoy this? Would the kids get something out of it? Who cares? God, does this bring you glory? Does this further the kingdom? Then I want to do it. Because I've died. And I have ceased to exist and it's all for you. And Lord, as I, as I live all for you, that's what matters. Now you sit here and say, that's crazy. It's only crazy to us because we're still trying to live our lives. Rewind the clock 2,000 years ago to the people that saw the resurrection of Jesus. It wasn't crazy to die to live for him. It wasn't crazy to Elisha to burn the equipment kill the oxen. It wasn't crazy to them. It's only crazy to us because we're still trying to find this beautiful compromise of Jesus, you're number one, and I still get to live my life the way I want. It doesn't work. It's all Him. Can you go with me now to Colossians chapter 2? Colossians 2. Start in verse 6 with me. Let's just break this down. Five verses here, straightforward. Verse 6. Colossians 2, 6. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. How simple is that? You received Christ. You understand who He is. You understand your need for a Savior. You understand your sin. You are going to hell. You need to be saved from that sin. So you give your life over to Christ. You say, you have paid the price for my sin. I have received you. So now I walk in you. Walk denotes effort. Walk denotes destination. Walk denotes purpose. 
7. Rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Rooted and built up, established. It's not just something I verbally say I'm doing. There, there's effort into this. Philippians says you work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. It does not say you work for your salvation. You work it out. I want to be stronger in you, Christ, by being rooted in you, built up in you, established in you. But now look at 8. Beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world and not according to Christ. Beware, people are trying to cheat you, to capture you. With what? Eight. Empty deceit. Empty takes us back to 1 Corinthians 15, which we read earlier. Empty, hollow, useless, void, meaningless. Folks, be careful of verse 8. That you do not waste your time and energy in empty, hollow, meaningless, void, useless things in this world. What a waste. How do you keep yourself from doing that? Die. Live for Him. And say, it's no longer about what I think, it's about what you think, Lord. And be careful of the empty deceit of religion. There's a lot of empty religion out there. A lot of empty religion. I was just talking to someone recently, and the subject came up as salvation. How are you saved? Do more good than bad, they said. Is that even obtainable? Can you do more good than bad? How much bad have you done? I've done a lot of bad. We got to the end of the conversation, and they realized they could never do more good than bad. But they have been trained, they have been raised in that hollowness, that emptiness of just do more good than bad in your end. Maybe you've been trained in the hollowness and the emptiness of certain things will make you in better standing with God. If I just read more... Pray more, more communion, more sacraments, more this, more that. Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. Anything we do from this point on is because, Lord, I love you and I just want more of you. Don't be chasing the hollow, useless, empty things. Take a look at 9. For in Him, in Christ, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. In Christ is everything you could ever need. 10. And you are complete in Him who is the head of all principality and power. Don't skip over 10. You are complete in Him. We do a lot of small group studies, and one of the prayer requests I always bring up at almost every small group study I'm in for me is that my identity would be in Christ. As I mentioned to you earlier, my identity cannot be in being a husband. My identity cannot be as a father. My identity cannot be as a pastor. My identity has to be in Christ. And when my identity is in Christ and I'm complete with Him, it makes me, through Jesus, a better pastor, husband, father. I wonder how many of you here today, you make your identity in you. What everybody else thinks about you. How you do at work, your kids. People struggle with empty nest. Why do they struggle with empty nest? Because they made their identity their kids. People struggle when their marriage gets a bit rocky because they made their identity their marriage. Make it Christ. I know pastors that have made their identity their church and ministry. So if the church is good, they're good. If the church is rough, they're rough. As I told you, I love you guys and I love this place, but my identity has to be Christ. That's why I found completion in Him. So I ask you, some of you, are you feeling hollow? Are you feeling empty? Are you running a useless race? I have to ask you, are you complete in Christ Jesus? Do you feel cheated? Are you complete in Christ Jesus? Because if you're not complete in Christ, you will feel hollow, empty, running a useless race, and you will be cheated. What do you need? Maybe you need to go back and refocus on Luke 9 and John 12. Lose your life and live for Him. That the real answer to living is through dying. 
And that Christ, you are my all in all. Complete in him. I believe the song, are we still closing with more of you, Marv? The, the last song we're going to sing after communion, the last line is, all I want is more of you. That's where completion is found. I just want to encourage you this Resurrection Sunday morning. Learn that the way you obey life is by dying to yourself. Learn to realize that there's going to be a whole lot of but firsts in your life. Just let those all go and say, Christ, it's you. Make yourself complete in Christ. Lose the hollowness. Lose the emptiness. You lose the running a useless race. And make yourself complete in Him. Your identity is in Christ, not in your job, in your marriage, in your kids, in your ministry, in your athletic achievements, and how much you know, and your pride, and your money. It's in none of that. It's in Jesus. It's in Christ. In Christ alone. The verse that we started out with back on Wednesday was Philippians 3, 10 and 11, where it says that we wanted to know the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. We covered the fellowship of his sufferings on Wednesday. Today, the power of his resurrection. And how do you find the power of his resurrection? By dying. It's a great concept, and if you're not getting it quite yet, go back and read Luke 9 and John 12 again. You will live by dying. That's where it comes down to. And Christ said, listen, I don't want you to be, I don't want to be number one in your life. I want everything. And when you give them everything, that's where it's at, folks. The fullness of God and Christ, and you're complete in Him. We're going to get ready for communion now so they can go bring the kids in. It's going to get a little loud here for a second. But I tell you this, parents, we bring the kids in.